Well, I want to welcome everyone here to Citizens this morning. Good to see everyone. If you have a Bible or a phone with a Bible app, let me ask you to turn to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read our scripture for this morning as we look at Jesus the Savior. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8, reads this way. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, I checked this morning, and um, I have uh, 124 Twitter followers. I don't know if that's a good amount. It's probably not. Um, I remember when, uh, or maybe it still is a big deal, how many followers you would have on social media. Maybe for some people it's a big deal if you're, you know, a big influencer or something. Um, I think it's a big deal if you're getting into the millions maybe, but for the rest of us Joes, it doesn't really matter that much. But there is something within our human nature that just wants us to follow someone. And maybe you can remember when you were a kid, if you had like an older sibling, uh, maybe you wouldn't admit it. Some of you would admit it. You're like, I want to be like my older brother or I want to be like my sister or whatever it was. And throughout history, like you look back over time and you see how people, uh, for good reasons and bad reasons, have followed um, influential people. Usually it's uh, political leaders or kings. And over time, you can see that like people have like millions and millions of good, normal, working people have followed some terrible leaders in history. You know, it's easy to look back and think of Hitler or Mussolini in World War II, and you think, man, how did like all these millions of people um, come behind these leaders? And maybe it was like social pressure or different reasons, but average Joe German farmer following Hitler is just like, wow, how did they get to that point? Even today, right, we won't get into politics, but you look down, you know, in the U.S. and you think of the Biden crew or the Trump crew or, or in other countries in Europe or South America, influential people, good or bad, depending on the argument, and people following them. And the question for us um, is, who's the right one to follow and as believers, we know we have a good answer, and uh, we have a solid answer in the person of Jesus Christ, who we've been focusing on every Sunday since we've been gathering, since we began. And in our text today, Luke, the gospel writer, is going to get us to think about the unique nature of this person named Jesus who came. And we're going to look specifically just at three verses, verses 10, 11, and 12, and we're going to look at them in reverse, okay? We're going to look at them at, in verse 12, verse 11, and 10. They are all, if you look at them, they are all connected to each other. 
10 kind of is connected to 11, and 11 is connected to 12. But to make best sense of them, or at least in my mind, hopefully you'll track along with me, we're actually going to walk backwards through them. Okay, so we're going to start at verse 12, and we're going to firstly see that Jesus is actually a sign. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says this, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This isn't a fairy tale. You know, we've been watching The Mandalorian, and we've been, or I've been kind of getting into Star Wars. I'm not like a big Star Wars person, but some people are really big into that. That movie starts with like a long, long ago, right? This, uh, the classic fairy tale beginning. This is the story of history. And yet within that history, there has always been skeptics, um, doubters. Today, there's definitely skeptics and doubters. All of us probably would be to a certain degree in that camp. But the scriptures don't hide the fact that there are people who interacted with the reality of the story that struggled with what they were actually seeing right before their eyes. So you think of in Matthew's gospel where Joseph is told that, you know, Mary's with a child and he's like, what? I have not been with her. How is this possible? And it says in Matthew, it says that, and he considered these things. He's wrestling with them in his mind. Or you think of Mary, right? Mary, the one who would bear Jesus. And when the angel comes to Mary and says, you are going to have a child. It is going to be come about through the power of the Holy Spirit, Mary says, she says that she was greatly troubled, it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 29. And then she goes on to say, how, how will this be? I've not been with a man. She's like, I had to talk with my mom. She told me how this works. How is this possible that I'm going to have a child? This doesn't make sense, right? She's like, this doesn't make any sense at all. And God graciously not only helps the skeptic, but includes the story and questions of people who didn't get what was happening around them. Man, that should bring us comfort. It should make us thankful for a God who actually allows us to enter in and wrestle over the story of what he's doing through the narrative here and obviously through our own lives. And so throughout here, Luke actually gives us clues to the historicity, to the, to the facts behind this. If you turn over one page or maybe scroll up in your phone at Luke chapter 1. I, I don't think I included this in the slide. Luke begins the gospel by explaining how he's putting together this story. Like, so that we get a clue of like, this is his purpose in putting together the gospel. Luke 1, starting in verse 1, says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, the most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's the purpose of the Gospel of Luke. Luke's like, I, Theophilus, you haven't had the time to do all the research, but I'm a doctor I'm one who's studied and I understand things. So I actually did the research into the story so that you wouldn't have to. So that you would come away from reading the text that I've written with surety and certainty that this is the reality of what's happened. So Luke has in mind for the whole book the mind of 
the wanderer, the mind of the skeptic, the one who is not sure about all the things that they have heard or maybe that they have been taught. <clears throat> Bruxy Cavey, in his book, uh, The End of Religion, he tells a story of having an interaction with uh, a lady who was doubting um, the Christian story. She wasn't a Christian yet, but she was just intrigued. She was kind of like drawn into uh, the story itself. And so they sat down together and they had conversation and, and they're talking back and forth. And finally, she came to the point where she's like, I just, I can't wrap my mind around this idea that God would become a person, that there was a person that lived on the planet here that was God. Like, how is that possible? And Bruxy goes on to explain, he says, I totally understand that that is like really difficult to, to wrap your mind around, to, to think through the ramifications of that. But he says, maybe you need to think of the problem in reverse. He says, maybe you need to think of, could God become a human be being? Rather than, there's a human being who calls himself God. How's that possible? Bruxy says, maybe you need to reverse the conversation and, and ask the question, could God become a human? And she says this. She says, oh, sure. God can do anything. Slowly, a smile spread across her face, and she, as she described it, her faith problem began to melt away. You see, when she switched how she was thinking about this miraculous thing, would it be possible for a person to become God? Man, obviously, that's no. We're, that's not going to happen. But could God do what he wanted? Could God become a baby as we see in this story here? Well, that was totally different. And so Luke here is helping us with understanding the mind of a skeptic. And he includes in there even details of a, a census. We, we didn't read it, but if you see in, in verses 1 and 2, he talks about a census. And, and we know from historical records that Augustus actually did do multiple censuses, you know, in 28 BC and in 8 BC and in AD 14, and that the way that they did censuses is exactly how Luke records it, that they would go back to the, to the sun, the sun would go back to his home village and they would count people and it would take time, right? It would take not just like a, a weekend, you know, everybody's back in Bethlehem and it's done. It take months, sometimes took years to actually accomplish this. And we know that there was a governor named Quirinius who was of, of Syria. So like the, the facts are there, but sometimes it's not the facts that always convince us. It's good that Luke is, uh, and God is gracious to us in giving us as doubters facts and details, but the facts don't always make the difference. There's also a story in Luke of the rich man and Lazarus, where it tells a story where, you know, Lazarus is this poor beggar, and the rich man obviously is the rich man. He's successful, and life has gone well, and they both die, and they go into the afterlife, and Lazarus is in paradise, and the rich man is suffering in Hades, right? And, and they're able to have this conversation back and forth, and the rich man says, you know, God, would you just send Lazarus back to my brothers just to warn them so that they would realize that life is more than just accumulating wealth and what they actually need to do is believe in you. And it says at the end of the story there in Luke 16, 31, that he said to him, this is God saying to the rich man, 
If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone would rise from the dead. Now, maybe you'd think, man, if I saw someone raised from the dead, that would do it. Doubts would be gone. I, I would just, the evidence would be so clear. And the scriptures actually here tell us that that's not the case. That even in our doubts, even when we have the best arguments to face our doubts, that doesn't always seal the deal. And this actually got me thinking of an example. I'm not a big basketball person, so you, you may know more about basketball than I do. But it got me thinking about a story I had heard a few years ago about Wilt Chamberlain. Have you ever heard of Wilt Chamberlain? Like one of the greatest basketball players ever. Um, it's up for debate. There's Kobe and there's Michael. But Wilt Chamberlain was like this dominating basketball player in the 60s who was just a giant of a man. But his weakness was the free throw. Right? He could not do the free throw, mainly because his coaches would teach him just like they taught the guys my height. Six foot, do the same thing, shoot this way. But Wilt was so big and so powerful that, you know, the ball is like this big in his hands. And he would throw it and it would just go all over the place. And you can see on YouTube tons of videos of him just being atrocious at the free throw line. One year, someone, I think one of the coaches was able to convince him to do a shot that would raise his percentage level. And we've probably all done that shot. It was the granny shot, right? It was between the legs and up like this. And when he started doing it, there's, there's some mathematical reason. I think you have more control or whatever. You know, in his strength, you're able to do granny style. And his percentage went up and up and up. And he had a record-setting year. So much so that he had one game, which was the highest scoring game, Get this, he scored 100 points in one game. Just him alone. 100 points. Come to the end of the season, and he started to abandon the granny shot already. And after, actually, that season, he never went back to the granny shot. And his free throw shot actually went down and down again and again. Even though he had heard the science behind it, kind of understood it. He even had experientially done it and, and succeeded at it. He couldn't go back. And what he said was he admitted that he just felt like a sissy when he shot like that. <laughs> he felt like a sissy. And I don't know if they called it back then a granny style, but maybe they did. It just didn't help that it was called granny style or he just couldn't do it. In the end, he was more likely to allow the crowd to dictate his behavior even though he knew that it led him to success. And so even though here, in our story, in our lives, most of us, the doubt seems to be screaming so loud, so loud, that we often don't even doubt the doubt that we have. But God, in his grace, continues year after year. And this is why we as believers even do such a thing as Advent, to remind ourselves of the evidence, the reality of what God did, and that he's gracious enough, even in our text here, to, to show the shepherds that you need a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. You're going to go into this town, Bethlehem. There might be other babies around, but here is your sign, Jesus will be uniquely positioned. He's going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's going to be lying in a manger. He will be the one that you will find like this. This is going to be the one who is going to be the savior of the world. And so the decision is for them to actually stay on the hill where they get this message 
or to go to Bethlehem. So if we look at verse 11 then, 11 gives us a little clue as to what the sign is that Jesus would be. So who is this one that they would actually go to visit? And what they'd find out is that Jesus is like no other. Jesus is like no other that there ever was or ever will be. Verse 11 says this, where it it describes for us who this Jesus is. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. These are the words that Luke uses to help us understand, okay, you doubting shepherds, this is who you're going to find, this baby, and this baby that you see, when you get there and see this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger, this is what you're looking at, okay? This is not just a regular baby, beautiful, cute, love holding and snuggling a little baby. This is someone who is unique. The descriptors that the angel uses is a Savior, Christ, and the Lord. So a Savior is this this one who would be the deliverer, one that they were hoping they would, someone who would free them up to deliver them from the bondage that they were under. And we've talked about this probably almost every week here that primarily uh, the Jews of that time were looking for someone to deliver them from Roman occupation. Okay, so someone to come and free them so that they could live in freedom as Jewish people in the land that was theirs, that was promised to them by God. So this this Savior word here is um, definitely connected to the work of God as deliverer, but it's not as unique. It's, it's a word that they were familiar with, that other people would have used. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have been something that was like shocking, like, oh, this is the Savior? No, this was the Savior, but probably one of many. So they're like, that's pretty good, Savior. But then it goes a little bit further. The angels use the word who is the Christ. So this word Christ is the word Messiah. So this is getting even more personal for them. This isn't just someone who's like a deliverer. This is someone who is the promised anointed one. So the prophecies in the Old Testament, the waiting and the longing of Israel would be fulfilled in this one. The one who would ultimately deliver them from not only the oppression of those would be in their land, but the oppression of the weight of sin and the weight of the broken and fallen world that they were living in. So a Savior, Christ, it's getting more and more um, awe-inspiring for the shepherds. And in the last one is the biggie, okay? The last one is the big one. This is the Lord. He is the Lord. He is, you know, Luke uses this word throughout his gospel, But this is the one it refers to the holy and unspeakable name of God. And many of you have heard of this before. It's the name Yahweh. This is the name that God uses, his personal name that he uses in the Old Testament to help us understand who he is and who this God is. It's it's like one commentator put it this this way. The supernatural master overall. How about that title? The supernatural master overall. This is what the angels are saying that this Yahweh is, this Savior. This puts Jesus, this puts this baby in a class that nobody else is in. When, they, when the shepherds heard this all strung together, they would have been dumbfounded to discover who it is that this baby would be. 
And, you know, if you read uh, books that challenge Christianity, or maybe you've had a conversation, maybe with like um, Jehovah's Witness or someone. Uh, I, I remember one time I was working at church. It was like, I don't know, it was like a Wednesday morning. I was there and a call came through and somehow it came to my phone. I'm not sure how, but it was a person just kind of like, they were ready for uh, an argument or a fight right over the phone, you know, and they were just like challenging me, you know, where in the Bible does Jesus say that he's the son of God? Like, show me verse, you know, chapter and verse, where is this? And so I kind of tried to find a good enough answer to satisfy this person and didn't satisfy them. They ended up hanging up, you know, the phone on me. So I was like, okay, that's the end of that conversation. But they had a point there. If someone were to ask you, where in the scripture does it say that Jesus said of himself, he's the son of God, you won't be able to find a place where he clearly uses those exact words. But what we see here, the angels saying of Jesus is that he is God. He is God in the flesh. The son of God came and became a baby. Maybe other verses that are um, that help us understand what Jesus thought of himself are John 14, verses 6 through 10. It says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. So Philip's like, show me the proof. Just let us see the Father, and we'll, be, we, we'll get it then. And Jesus said to them, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Jesus is saying, I'm God. If you want to see, if you want to know who God the Father is, look at me. That's who I am. His claims are not like, like, is he saying maybe this? Or is he kind of insinuating that he's God? He's clearly saying he is God, which lines up with the prophecy in the Old Testament and lines up with the angelic words here that we're seeing in Luke. The claims of Jesus are like no other. C.S. Lewis, in his well-known quote, puts it this way, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept this claim to, his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would, be a great, would not be a great moral teacher, he would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can ship him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Christ did not come and leave it an option for us to just say, this is a wonderful Christmas story, a beautiful little baby, and then grows into this great teacher who has like some amazing 
you know, moral teaching for us. And if we could just follow his ways, people would be happy and peaceful. Jesus hasn't left us with that option. We have to wrestle more with what he's, he's said and what he's done and what the, the followers of his have made clear throughout Scripture. Other leaders have come and said they're great people. Other religions have said they have great moral authority. And here we have Jesus saying, I am God in the flesh. And the angels saying, this is the Savior who is Christ the Lord, Yahweh. We must wrestle with him must wrestle with the, um, with the bold claims that he made. And then ultimately, we have to make a response. It demands a response, doesn't it? It kind of hangs out there. If this is true, if this is God in the flesh, then something must be done with that. And that brings us to the last verse here, verse 10, which is the beginning of the statement where it says, And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I will bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news of great joy for all the people. This isn't good advice that's coming through the Christmas season. This is good news. Good news is the telling of an event that has happened that actually changes the world as a result of it. So we're going to look back at this year of 2020 and COVID-19, and it will be news that we will tell that has changed the world. Um, it's going to be a generational marker. And for those of us who are a little bit older, another one was like September 11th. Remember that? That was a generational marker. We can probably all remember where we were when September 11th happened and how the world literally changed within like a moment, within a day. I, I, I tell stories now of you know, picking people up at the gate and just walking up to the gate. No security. You know, you just walked right up and off they walked from the plane and there they were. And you could walk onto the plane and you could still have like a pocket knife. Remember those crazy days? You could have a pocket knife in your pocket and there was no problem, right? Now, kids would, you know, they'd be like, what kind of world did you live in, dad, you know? Um, but this was the reality. And September 11th was an event that happened that changed our world. Changed it for good, probably. And this is what the good news is. This is news of what has happened, that Jesus has come now, and the world is no longer the same. It is completely different from now on. And the work that God had been doing in preparation has all been fulfilled in this person now, in this little baby. It would be the good news of Jesus Christ. And it would be the news that would be, look at what it says there. It'd be news of great joy, and it would be for all the people. For all the people. It would fulfill the longing of all people. And I was thinking this week of um, songs that kind of talk about this, and, and two songs came into my head. Um, I don't know if anybody listens to them anymore, but remember the band called U2? Remember those guys, right? I, I don't know if anybody even listens to U2 anymore, but they had music and they had a pretty well-known song called I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, right? Written 1986, Bono. If you've ever seen the video, it's super cheesy, walking around like Las Vegas, singing this song. But I was reading the lyrics this week for it, and it all talks about this longing and this unmet expectation. And it's primarily talking about love, but this is the, the search is on, right? He says, I have climbed the highest mountains. 
I have run through the fields only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This longing for what is it that's going to solve the problems of my world, of the issues of my life, the, the difficulties in my work, the difficulties in my day, the love that I'm seeking, the, the acceptance that I want. What's going to fill that? And Bono just so rightly puts it, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But in contrast to that, Charles Wesley wrote a song in 1744. All right, this is going even further back, 1744. Probably, for me at least, my favorite Christmas song. And it's, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. This Christian hymn talking about the longing of every heart that is actually met in the person of Jesus. And the second verse is just beautiful. It captures this. It says, Israel's strength and consolation Hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Every heart on this planet is longing for acceptance that maybe is, is greatly experienced with, with the friends that they have, but never reaches the fulfillment of the longing. Every heart is looking for uh, love, Again, in the relationships that we experience, maybe closest in the family, love is experienced to a great degree, but it's never fully to the longing that our hearts truly desire. And this Christmas story shows us that the good news is that every longing that we have that is, that is not fulfilled here in our lives, that we try to fill with gifts, that we try to fill with food, that we try to fill with experiences, all that longing is actually the good news of Jesus Christ. It's fulfilled in him. And this is what we remember as Christians. And it can be, the gospel can maybe be um, summed up in three words that we don't use a lot, but theologically as, as believers, we should know what these words actually mean. It's incarnation, substitution, and restoration. So at Christmas, we think about, and we spend a lot of times pondering incarnation, that God came and put on flesh, became a human being. And this is what we're reading about here. But it wasn't just that he came to be a baby. And like Sam put so well in his uh, confessional time here, he did more than that. He actually came to be our substitute. He came to be a substitution. The sins that were on us, the weight of the broken world that was on us, he took that on and died in our place. But death did not keep him down. He rose from that. He conquered death. And so the last word is restoration, where even now as believers, we experience his restoration in our lives. It's usually a slow process. We wish it was faster. We wish it would be done, you know, within six months or something. But slowly over time, restoration is happening in relationships and in our lives. And ultimately, the totality of the restoration will come when Jesus returns. And that's why at Christmas, we, yes, we think about his arrival, but we also we long for that total restoration of when he will come and return and the work of restoration will be complete. It will be done, 100% finished. We long for that. And so as Christians, we talk about the gospel and we share the gospel as good news 
of what God has done in our place. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous preacher. Um, I want to say where he's from, but I know I'm probably going to say it wrong. Like, you know, I'm going to say like England and then the Scottish will be angry at me or maybe he wasn't Scottish and the Irish will be angry. I don't know where he's from. He's from up there. Okay. Harold probably knows where he's from across the pond. And, and he talked about the gospel and, and he told a story of um, interacting with believers in his church and, and asking them, do you feel saved today? He would go up and ask them that. Do you feel saved today? And some would say, well, trying my best, pastor, you know, or hey, I'm here at church this morning. That's pretty good, right? One step in the right direction. And this is what he said as a result of that answer. At once, I know that they are still thinking in terms of themselves. Their idea still is that they have to make themselves good enough to be a Christian. It sounds very modest, but it is a lie of the devil. It is a denial of the faith. You will never be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of the Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough and that I am in him. And so the good news that the angels brought to the shepherds that day was good news for them, absolutely. It was good news for Joseph and Mary. Even you can see in verse 17 and 18 that they told them this. They were the first ones and they were like, this is what the angel told us. This is the good news. This little baby boy is going to be the Savior, our Savior, the Savior of the world. And this is the gospel And so, this morning, do you need a sign? Do you need a a reminder of who this is that we celebrate on Christmas morning? Jesus is the sign. Have you met this person, this God in flesh, Jesus, who's like no other, like no other leader? Have you met him? We can look at Jesus Do you need good news today? And to that we would all say amen. We need good news. And so we together, as believers, look to the greatest news that we have, which is in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he gives us full freedom to live in this world knowing that we know him, our creator, the all-powerful one, and that we can share that with others. And just like the shepherds, these weak, no names, we have no names of who these people, people were. We are the no-names who tell the story, the greatest story that there ever was of Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, this morning together. God is so special to gather as Christians and uh, those who are weak. And Lord, we come uh, with our own problems and with our own doubts, and we thank you that you are gracious to us And you remind us again and again that you do not push away the sinner. You do not push away the skeptic. You do not recoil in disgust or disappointment. But God, you came near. You came close. You came in weakness. And for that, we are ever grateful. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.